0: Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare, a medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine. He is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing, and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right. Welcome to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. As always, we'd like to welcome all of our listeners and tell you how excited I am to have you. Got a great show today. I'm totally excited about today's show. Today we are joined by our very own Trish again, who always makes our show fun and gives us a whole different perspective as to how we think about mental health, spiritual health, and physical health as well. Um, A few housekeeping items first. Trish, what conferences are coming up here at the Sacred Heart Chapel?
1: Well, now that you mention it, we have a conference featuring our very own Dr. Lewis Sandoval coming up in August. And um, what date is that Dr. Sandoval? <laughs> so we are going to have
0: the Sex and Honor Conference right. on Saturday, August 7th, 2021. And I'm going to be one of the speakers, but we're also going to be joined by Cherie Ballinger, who is one of the producers for Roe vs. Wade. If you have not seen that film, great film. I saw it I thought it was a great approach and a great topic to or a great way to approach the topic of abortion um because it wasn't very preachy it was very much Straightforward. It reminded me of one of those old Hollywood film noirs where you just kind of see what was happening back in the day, uh, for the Supreme court, for the justices, uh, what was going on with their families and what influenced them to vote in a certain way when they did, uh, very interesting to look at and something to consider, uh, when people talk to you about, well, why, why, abortion should it be legal? Should it be not legal? I thought it was a great, great movie. And so Sheree Ballinger will be here. She was one of the producers there. Our very own Mary Danielle Barber is going to talk to us about theology of the body, uh, uh, and the John Paul II approach as to how we look at our bodies. And really, my topics are more about, let's just talk about sex as Catholics. You know, it's such a taboo topic. It seems like we hear the word and we cringe or we react. And I think it's time that we just kind of start talking about it. The world's talking about it. Why don't we discuss it as Catholics? One of the things that I'm looking at here is, Trish, how can people join this conference?
1: So um, they can register for this conference online. Um, we have two ways to actually view it. They can come in person and um, or they can just choose to view it live online through our portal, and they would just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org to sign up for it. It's very easy. I am
0: actually on the webpage for virginmostpowerfulradio.org right now, so I can tell our listeners, when you go on the webpage, scroll down a little bit, you're going to see that there's actually two conferences, and I'm going to discuss the other conference in a second. But if you click the second Sex and Honor Conference, it takes you to the page. It's got the speakers on there. You scroll down, and then right there, it tells you how to register register for it, and it gives you the schedule of events. We're going to have talks from... 9 a.m. World check-in's going to be at 8. Talks from 9 a.m. Till uh, 4 p.m. Is going to be end of question and answer. Followed by a holy hour. What a better way to follow up a conference. And then there's going to be a 5 p.m. vigil mass. So that's pretty exciting. Easy to, to join right there on our website. The other conference that's coming up is actually pretty exciting. It's the Women's Conference. True Devotion to St. Joseph. That's going to be Saturday, September 18th. Um, and that's going to be with Father Charles Muir. Father Stephen, I can't pronounce his last name. Do you know how to pronounce his last name, Trish?
1: Um, I don't have his
0: name in front of me Lesniewski but Father Stephen will be here and again Mary Danielle (laughs) Barber great a lot of our listeners have been asking for a women's (laughs) conference I think it's such a important topic uh, to have an important conference to have that one again is going to be Saturday September 18th 2021 and you can go to our website again and register in the same way so always happy to have conferences here at the Sacred Heart Chapel here in Covina Um, and wonderful that you can either register to be in person or virtual now today's topic. Very interesting topic, very great topic, um, because a lot of us experience this, a lot of us feel this, and a lot of times people don't know how to approach it. But before we do that, since we are at the noon hour, let's pray the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary
1: and became man
0: and dwelt among us hail mary full of grace lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus
1: holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen
0: pray for us O holy mother of god
1: that we may be made worthy of the promises of christ
0: let us pray pour forth we beseech thee o lord thy grace into our hearts that we to whom the incarnation of christ thy son was made known by the message of an angel may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same christ our lord Amen. amen St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke and we humbly pray and do Thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host. By the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our, day, our topic today is anxiety. You know, at the end of the day... Uh, anxiety really is the number one, as we say, mental illness that we, that is prevalent in the United States. It's the most common thing that we treat in, in mental health clinics as psychiatrists, therapists, anxiety kind of rules it all. You know, we're used to hearing about psychosis and, uh, we're used to hearing about bipolar because those are a little bit more intense, right? And so those are, get a little bit more interesting. We see some major, major symptoms going on with those. But when we talk about anxiety, what do you think, Trish, what comes to your mind as soon as I say anxiety?
1: Oh my gosh, so many things. Like, can I say my children? <laughs> it's um as as a mother, I feel like we're always in a state of anxiety of one form or another. We worry about our children, we worry about where they're at or if they're traveling or um you know, I have a a child across country. So, um yeah, there's there's anxiety as a parent, I think that is Inherent, you can't you can't avoid it, um,
0: yeah. Yeah, but the, and you bring up a very very important point because I mentioned that it's the number one thing that we treat. But do we need to really treat all anxieties? One thing that we need to discuss before we even talk about clinical anxiety, as we call it, is that anxiety is a normal human emotion. I tell all my patients when they tell me, "Doctor Sandoval, I'm anxious," I, think, I say, "Good." That's actually a good thing because it's a normal human emotion. We better have anxiety at a certain point. If you're in a building and it's burning or if there is an earthquake or something, I hope your anxiety meter goes up because it's actually good for survival. So anxiety, a lot of people think, oh, I shouldn't be anxious. I should be calm all the time. No, it's good to have a certain level of anxiety. It's actually motivating, right? So it's a normal human emotion. If we think back to caveman days, Anxiety is what helped you get away from the saber toothed tiger or whatever you needed to run away from and hide in the cave. That was a good thing because it was survival as a mom. Um, you know, we do, we think about the survival of our children, I should say, as a parent, whether you're a dad or a mom, we think about the survival of our, of our children. So we're going to have a natural anxiety that guess what? Once the kids are born, that's it. You're locked into this parental anxiety that is never going to go away. Believe it or not. You know, a lot of kids are like, Oh, I'm 18 now, or, you know, I'm, I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. But that's, you know, legal. That's on paper. The, the real question is what changes for us as parents the day that they're 17 to the next day when they're 18? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. It's a difference in a day, but the parental bond, the parental responsibility has not changed at all. Uh, other, other than to say, you know, as kids get older, obviously there's things I don't need to do for them. I'm not responsible for them dressing themselves necessarily. I'm not responsible for them studying for themselves if they're in college. There's things that they need to do on their own that I'm no longer responsible for, but that anxiety never changes. What are your thoughts on that?
1: No, I I, I totally uh, agree with that. Um, the one thing that comes to mind, though, is you, you mentioned the flipping the switch from age 17 to age 18. And um, I have an 18-year-old, and um, she thinks that she's ready for certain things as an adult, that she's prepared. And having been there, done that, remembering when I was that age, um, as long ago as that was, I can still remember it. Um, I just, uh, my anxiety where that is concerned is, is she ready for those decisions that she is thinking she's ready to make? And yeah, <laughs> how do we deal with that?
0: No, that's, you know? that's a great point because in real life, I mean, I talk to Richard about this all the time, our producer, I, you know, we discuss Getting older really just means realizing a lot of a lot of it is realizing the experience that our elders told us that our parents told us, our grandparents told us about whenever they would talk about things. It's not until we get older that we're like, oh,
1: right, right. What
0: they meant. Oh, this is the back pain my dad was talking about. Oh, this is the (laughs) stiffness in the morning that I didn't experience when I was 10, you know, or whatever it is. And as we start getting older, we start to realize now I understand why the adults would tell us these things. And I think as we realize that, we want to impart that knowledge on the youth and tell them, no, no, trust me, I was there, I know what's going on, no. If you go down that path, this is what I see happening. But sometimes in Spanish, we say you have to learn it in your own skin. Sometimes it's not until you experience it for yourself that you're not going to get it. And that's really hard. It's really hard to do, I think, as a parent, because you kind of see the road ahead. You see where the kids are headed. You see the decisions that they're making and how that's going to affect them. Um, But they're going to be blinded to that.
1: Right, right. No, that's exactly right. Um, I've, I've had to learn as a parent to let go of the reins. Yeah, you know, and you have to they have to be able to uh, learn to make mistakes in order to learn how to recover from those mistakes. So um, it's like when I was coaching uh, figure skating years ago, the first thing I teach uh, my students, no matter what age they were, was how to fall and then how to get up. Mm -hmm. That was the very first lesson. We did it five times. exactly.
0: Did you you make them fall?
1: (laughs) Yes, I made them fall. I showed them how to do it without hurting themselves and um, had them do it repeatedly so that they could repeat the proper behavior how to get up without hurting themselves, also.
0: fascinating. Right. <laughs> you know what? You know why? Because if you look at it from a, a just kind of an everyday experience, you think, oh, how logical, you know, you teach your kid how to fall and all stuff. But you said something super, super important. You said, it's not that I was teaching them how to fall safely, but I was teaching them how to get up after the fall. Yes. And yeah. that I think is key because as Catholics, you know, when we have all this anxiety, we do something wrong, we, we feel like we messed up. We forget that in God's eyes. It's not so much the fall as are you going to get up?
1: and move forward the, right and move forward what did you learn from that experience oh
0: my goodness that right. that right there in a nutshell is you know being catholic more which <laughs> we should be come back from the break as we continue to talk about anxiety and what that means for us as catholics Well, welcome back to the Dr. Lou Sandoval Show here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Today, we have our special guest, Trish, who is joining us to talk about anxiety. And what does this mean for us as Catholics? What kind of conversation can we have about it? Um, Because it can lead to some interesting things that we're going to talk about later on in the show. But, you know, as parents, you know, and I can totally appreciate this when I asked Trish, what does anxiety mean for you? You know, right away we think about our kids, right? Because that's our biggest source of anxiety. But let me ask you this. Do you know the difference between fear and anxiety? There's actually a definition. We we actually, and you don't have to, I mean, we haven't discussed this before. So just what comes to mind, but fear versus anxiety, there is actually a psychiatric definition for the for these.
1: Um. Take a guess. Take a guess. Okay. Uh, fear is something that you react to. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And anxiety would be, Um, something that you can actually manifest yourself.
0: Great way to describe them, actually. Yes. So to give you the formal definition, fear is actually an emotional response to a very real or perceived and imminent threat. Mm-hmm. which puts you in a flight or flight or something you react to. You're going to react to fear. So that's why when we go to see a horror movie, if people are into those, they you experience fear. You don't necessarily, and you will, you experience some anxiety too. And I'll tell you that, that definition as well. But fear you experience because it's a real threat. You see it happening and you're really worried in that moment. And so it, it makes you take a fight or flight. You got to move, you got to react. Like I described, you know, you're in the middle of a burning fire. There's a, a earthquake, something going on along those lines. Now, anxiety, you said, is something that you can manifest. And you're right, because the difference is fear is happening right now and I'm reacting to it. Anxiety is an anticipation anticipation. of a future event. Mm -hmm. So anxiety, so that's the biggest difference. The anxiety is I'm worried about something that's going to happen. So instead of fight or flight, it makes me vigilant and prepare. So I start to worry about the future. So that's the difference. Fear is the here and now. Anxiety is more uh, shall we say fear, but we, shall we say concern or worried about the future, and it keeps you in a waiting mode. So it's interesting to notice that because a lot of people ask, well, what's the difference between fear and anxiety? You know, uh, what does that mean? But it's just an interesting exercise in, in doing that. Now, what I do want to tell our listeners is, how do you know if your anxiety is to the point where you're more than just a parental anxiety, more than just an everyday anxiety, but you really kind of go get some help? You, you really need to talk to a psychiatrist or a therapist or something. Do you know? What do you know, Trish?
1: I think when um, it becomes debilitating and your entire life, everything, your, everything that you are planning your day out revolves around whatever you're anxious about um, or... The fact that you can't do something, it's almost you're like deer in the headlights. You're not moving. You're not moving forward. You're not getting stuff done because you're anxious about either doing that or something else that's unrelated. Um, It can be so many different factors. But that's absolutely right. Yeah.
0: That's absolutely right because like I said before, right? We said earlier, anxiety is perfectly normal. Everybody experiences it and we anticipate that you're going to experience it. We anticipate that there's going to be anxiety, Um, but... All of a sudden, when do I need to go get help? You know, does, has anybody ever said, gosh, you need to go do something about that anxiety because it's making me anxious or something along those lines. Really what it comes down to is how persistent is it? In other words, in, in layman's terms, are you able to get over it? Because anxiety, I could worry about certain things, but am I able to function anyway? Am I still able to go to work? Am I still able to talk to my friends? Am I still able to get through life and think, oh yeah, I am worried about taking care of that thing in the future. or I got to take care of that but is it making it so that I don't even want to get out of bed because I'm so scared? So just a few points for our listeners. Um, we know in, in terms of treatment, the way we look at this is we know that we need to treat officially if you're having excessive or persistent anxiety for more than six months, right? So we'll let it go six months because like we said, anxiety is normal. If you're telling me that you're worried about taking a test next week and you're in college, I'll say, okay, we'll take your test and we'll see what happens. But if all of a sudden you take your test and you're still worried about it. And I'm like, well, the test is over. Why are you worried now? Well, I'm worried about the next test or I'm worried about this or that. And if that's lasting for longer than six months, it might be time to consider getting help. Um, Interesting things about anxiety, it can begin in childhood. Very common, a lot of people say, well, when did anxiety start? No, so somebody comes into clinic and I say, you know, when did it start for you? How long have you been anxious for? And really what I ask is, when was the first time you ever remember feeling anxious? Um, And a lot of kids will say, a lot of, I'm sorry, a lot of my patients who are adults will say, Gosh, ever since I was probably like in grade school, you Mm -hmm. know, or junior high, like it's a normal human emotion. We remember being anxious, but I mentioned this because as parents, it's good to be aware that our kids can be anxious and on the one hand it's okay, but on the other hand, you, you know, it's not a bad idea to see if they might need some help. What are your thoughts on that, Trish, as a mom?
1: No, I mean, having gone through it with my own children, um, and it, and it did start manifesting in grade school right around the age of 10. And um 10 to 11 years old just just pre-puberty, like yeah. right on that cusp. Yeah. And um yeah, it's really important to be in tune, um to be paying attention and uh, you just you feel so helpless as a parent, like you can explain to them, okay, this this is perfectly normal for you to be worried about this. Um you know, I remember feeling anxious about certain things, but you're right. I mean when it becomes a constant, constant thing, this, this entity in their lives, um, you have to there are things that we, we don't have control over. and um, you do have to reach out and get some some help uh, to help them work through it and um, gain some tools.
0: And it's hard, because a, deal with it. it's hard because as a parent, like I said, you know, you see your kid and I think a lot of times you think, eh, they're fine. They're good. They'll get over it, right? The kids are always fine or it's it's, it's happening right now. But here's what I would tell parents and not just to look out for kids, but to look out on ourselves as well. One of the things that one of the big things that we look at is, does your anxiety interfere with your achievement? So kind of like you were saying, you're not able to function anymore. Is it keeping you from getting to work on time? Is it keeping you from functioning at work and doing your job well? Is it keeping you from reaching your goals that you want to achieve. I know a lot of people who don't graduate college because they're actually afraid to succeed. People can be worried about succeeding. So that can be a, a source of anxiety too. Interesting to note twice as common in females as it is to males based on what we know. And the reason I say that is because it's more common to fem- for females to go seek help for mental health or talk about their emotions or see a psychologist or anything along those lines. Guys are not, we're not really as prone to do that. You know, we're not as prone to do that. So, you know, based on on the statistics we have, two to one ratio for females. But the main thing that I worry about as a psychiatrist is that when people do suffer from chronic anxiety, there is actually a greater risk for suicide compared to other uh, mental illnesses, right? Because that anxiety can be grating. It can be. It can kind of take its toll on a daily basis. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, or you know, um, some of the the things that happen um, just from observing other other people's children, um, being a parent who was afforded the um, privilege of being able to do a lot of volunteering at the schools and seeing how other kids uh, react to the same situations that your own children are going through and how different every child is, but then also seeing how the anxiety, just um, school life um, manifests itself physically, um, with some kids and you see the, um, the cutting and the scratching and, um, self-mutilation and things like that, um, or acting out or, you know, all sorts of things, uh, behaviors. Um, and it's kind of scary to, to watch this happening because it seems to be a lot more common now, um, than it was years, decades ago, and maybe we just were being so young and self-absorbed. Um, we didn't notice it so much with other other kids, our, our classmates or whatever.
0: That's the question of the day, right? So yeah. whenever something like that happens, you're absolutely right. We see a lot more of... This cutting behavior, self-mutilation behavior, people will burn themselves. And what I tell my parents, the parents of, of any child who's doing this or the child who's doing it, you know, realize that they're not necessarily at that moment, they're not necessarily trying to end their lives. So if somebody tells me, oh, yeah, I was cutting my wrist. My next question, initially, our gut reaction is, oh, my God, you're trying to end your life. But my next question is, "Okay, what was your goal? Why were you doing that? you know, and a lot of them say, because I just wanted to feel. And sometimes what happens with anxiety is that internally we're feeling so it's such a tumultuous feeling. We're feeling so wrapped up, so tied down, so painful that sometimes they need something exterior to manifest the equivalent of what they're feeling inside. So they'll cut, you know, somebody will cut or burn because that level of pain is what they're showing you. Now you understand my interior pain, If you see my exterior pain, that's kind of what it feels like on the inside. I think it's kind of like when the saints or anybody that has given us revelations talks about the pains of hell or the pains of purgatory. You know, when we hear about these different pains, they usually say it's hard to explain it to you in the physical human realm. They say, but the best way to explain it's like either really hot or really cold, but painful in the the heat or the cold. And so they explain it that way. I think it's kind of the same way for for kids or adolescents where it's the most common. You know, if I'm going to cut myself and you know what it's like to have a a painful cut. That's what I'm experiencing inside. So I don't rush to think that, oh, they're going to commit suicide at that point. But, but here's the big, but the big fear. And this is why I asked, what was your goal? Well, I was trying to cut my wrist just so that I could feel something. Well, you're kind of headed down a path though, because if you weren't trying to end your life, you sure might accidentally go down that route. And that can be pretty scary. Any Mm -hmm. thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, no. Um, unfortunately this, this past year and a half has, um, Brought about a lot of that sort of thing, and the end result being very tragic, um, and it, it's a vicious cycle because they're um, they meaning that the young people they see their friends going through this, they can't help them except to just say I understand and I'm here for you if you want to talk, but that doesn't that doesn't seem to help. It's almost like empty words to them, and. Frustrating for us, um, you know, certainly we went through our own stresses, our own anxieties um, growing up for me in the 80s and, you know, being, having the anxiety about the looming World War III. Sure, yeah.
0: They, right? Yeah. I
1: remember so that? Cold War with Russia, right? Oh, my We're gosh. So, um, you know, worrying about stuff like that, that was real, but it wasn't. You mm-hmm, know, again, mm-hmm. it's a perceived Um, threat Mm -hmm. that may or may not be real so it depends on how you can work yourself through that sort of thing but with these kids what was going on with the pandemic for example Mm -hmm. it was real but it's an invisible real
0: and so you bring up something very important. So back in the 80s, growing up in the 80s, right, it was all about all the, if you look at the movies from the 80s, it was all about the U.S. and some kind of a Russian spy or Russia and Russia and Russia. And because that's what Red you, Dawn. Red, you know, you, of course, you watch Red <laughs> Dawn, you watch Top Gun, you watch Ruskies, you watch any of these movies, uh, uh, you know, and it was all about Russia's going to invade us. And we had that war with Russia or that, that you know, we had the Star Wars uh, uh space system that was supposed to save us in case there was a nuclear bomb, a lot of fear. Um, But what I do remember is that all that fear was being talked about on the news. So even though it might've been, you know, explosive on the news, it was being talked about and people could talk openly about it because we had this uh, common enemy, if you will, and we all were in on it together. I think nowadays, one of the saddest parts that I find, and you can tell me how true this is, it seems like we don't have a common enemy now. I think people are anxious about different things And those don't always come up. So like if we're going to look at the pandemic, some people are more worried about why am I being forced to wear a mask and what does this mean for my freedom? Other people are more worried about how could you not see what's happening and why aren't you wearing a mask or protecting yourself? We can talk a little bit more about this when we come back from the break because what I want to do is I want to discuss different types of anxiety disorders, what to look out for when you want to come in and get help from your psychiatrist and just kind of everyday anxieties that we're experiencing now. Uh, More of this when we come back from the break with Trish as we discuss Anxiety. Thanks for joining us, Trish. All right. Welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Louis Sandoval Show. Today we are talking with Trish about anxiety and what that means in our society and what's happening We were talking a little bit before the break about how, you know, sometimes if we have a common enemy, we can kind of help each other out in our anxieties and we can boost each other. But in today's society, it seems like a lot of people are split on different ideals, different thoughts. What are your thoughts on that, Trish? How do we make amends? How do we reconcile all these different thoughts that are bringing up different anxieties, really, from different perspectives?
1: Man, I wish I knew. I mean, it seems like that there's so much um, labeling and finger pointing going on with no... um, personal, um, people taking responsibility for themselves. It's, it's really so strange to me that, um, you know, growing up in an era where, um, we had it pounded into our heads. If you want something done right, do it yourself. If you want, if you don't like your situation, do something about it and change it. Well, everything is so extreme now. So you know, to these youngsters who think, okay, I'm going to go protest. I'm gonna go out and do something about it because I don't like it. Well, how do you where do you draw the line? And you know, it it's just they're so bombarded with so much um I don't know, propaganda. Well
0: you bring up something interesting to consider. You said we grew up in a, in an era where if you wanted something done or if you didn't like it, go fix it. Mm-hmm. Take action. Do it. Versus now it seems like if you're going to protest, but I I get the feeling, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I get the feeling that people are very upset. They want to protest, but they don't themselves want to make any change. They're expecting somebody else to make the change,
1: right? It's all about blaming,
0: right? So and... somebody else has to make this change for me. Somebody else has to take care of this for me, something right. along those lines. Right. So that's pretty, uh, it's an interesting perspective. Um, you know, it reminds me back to back in the day, which I don't hear much anymore is uh, uh, JFK. Uh, do you remember his famous line in his speech? Ask not mm-hmm. what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Right. Don't hear that much anymore. Now it's all about well, what's this country doing for me. <laughs> right. You know. Right. But interesting point, and interesting things to talk about in terms of anxiety too for our listeners is: is there only one kind of anxiety? We talk about anxiety as though it's a one-stop uh, shop, but really, there's different types. So let me go through a few of them. So, in case anybody's experiencing these, you know, you might want to go get help, or you might want to get these taken uh, a look at. Uh, one of them is now this happens as a kid right? The one that we all know about separation anxiety, you take your kid and this, and this is normal as a baby growing up, you practice leaving the room, they cry, mom walks back in the room and then they're happy. Um, but then all of a sudden, you know, as they grow up and they're going to school, we see separation anxiety, say preschool, kindergarten, whatever the first age of school is. Um, but do you know when it's, when you know it's a problem versus it's a normal sign? Cause it's normal, right? A kid goes to kindergarten. Sometimes they cry on the first day. Sometimes they cry all year as they get dropped off, but is that normal or not? What are your thoughts?
1: Um, I feel like it is because eventually they they learn that they're actually in a safe place if in fact mm-hmm. they are yeah. <laughs> and sometimes though school might not be a safe place and so I think what you need to pay attention to is if your child is continuing to react um, when you're trying to get them to go to school, especially if they're older and have the reasoning capabilities to know Absolutely. that, um, school should be a safe place. So if, if it's not safe for them, why?
0: Absolutely. And so one of the things to consider is, this is what I would usually tell parents, talk to the teachers and see what's going on. First, you know, they're in kindergarten, preschool, where the kid might not be able to express themselves as well. You know, after you drop them off, very common for the teachers to say, Oh, trust me, once you leave, they're fine and they play all day and you're fine. And all of a sudden, you show up to pick them up again, or any parent shows up and they start crying again. Very common. And so, then that's a normal reaction. And that's a kind of a healthy separation anxiety because during the day, they weren't, you're out of sight, out of mind, and they were okay. If you notice that the teacher's saying, no, they're just crying all day, that might be something that we need to look at. You know, at a certain point, the kid has to readjust and realize they are somewhere safe. They're something, uh, you know, they don't have to cry all day. They're going to be distracted by the lesson plans at those young ages. But you bring up a good point if a kid's getting older or if they really really just don't want to go to school we kind of got to ask ourselves why is something going on is this more than just separation anxiety is there regular bullying going on do they feel that they're not safe around a certain teacher you know whatever it is that's definitely an important question to ask definitely important to uh, get help if needed Um, another source of anxiety so that's for kids as we get older uh, a very common one is specific phobias so people have specific phobias, right? So you've heard of like the movies, you know, arachnophobia and people play on, you know, you're afraid of the spiders, you're afraid of snakes, you're afraid of flying. This can really happen. The question is how debilitating is it? So a lot of patients will say, I'm afraid of flying. Um, you know, sometimes they'll take a, a small dose of a certain medication for the flight and it relaxes them and that's good. But what about somebody who's claustrophobic and they have to take an elevator up to the whatever level, of the building that they have? What are your thoughts on that, Trish? What yeah. You you
1: um, my gosh. Um, you know, you hear about uh, these people who are, um, like you say, claustrophobic or maybe afraid of heights. And so they gather up all of their, their buddies and they do something to put them in that situation so that they can overcome their fears. Um yeah. But what happens if you have an anxiety attack while you're like at the top of that that bridge that you're going to bungee jump off of and
0: <laughs> you well, freak out.
1: Uh, so <laughs>
0: Well. Okay, if you're going to bungee jump off a bridge, I mean, that that could be a source of anxiety and you're afraid of heights, but I think if if you're of heights is pretty, it depends on the level of height. I mean, if I'm at the top of the building and looking down and people say I have a fear of heights, that's pretty normal with the building's like 30 feet. Or if you're at the top of the bridge and you realize you're gonna jump off of it, because now it's a matter of life or death at that point. But what if you're afraid of heights and you can't get on a couple steps of a ladder or something? That could be debilitating. If you're afraid of uh, uh, enclosed spaces and you need to take that elevator, how are you gonna get up to the office? I mean, are you gonna take the staircase all the time? Maybe. What if you are afraid of flying and all of a sudden you do take a little bit of medication beforehand, all of a sudden you're in the plane and it wears off and you're sitting in this plane and you still got hours to go on your flight. You know, these are things that are going to be important to remember that there are solutions outside of medication for some people where you can start doing exercises, mental exercises, where you can start thinking of something happier. You start, you know, distracting yourself. You start to do deep breathing exercises. All these things are going to help because when people are anxious, they do have a physiological response, right? They can be a physiological response, which brings me to my next one. What happens if there is a panic disorder, right? And do you know what a panic disorder is, Trish? Do you know what the definition of that is?
1: Well, um, I mean, I've heard of, um, panic attacks and Mm -hmm. things like that. People, um, it's been described to me and I think I've probably had one or two myself where you, you literally feel like you're, heart is exploding out of your chest Mm -hmm. or, um, it's the same feeling. Like if you're, um, having a nightmare where you're being chased and you can't move, um, only they're, they're wide awake and they are completely aware of what their surroundings are. So it's not like they're in a trance state or anything like that. It's just, um, complete fight or flight feeling
0: absolutely yeah and what happens is so when people do have a panic disorder you're right they have these very very strong emotions uh you feel like your heart's going to jump out of your chest you start sweating your blood pressure goes up things of that nature but then you got to ask yourself do i need to go to the er because very commonly, people having a panic disorder feel like they're having a heart attack. Yes, and they say there is something wrong with me. I know I'm gonna die, mm-hmm. and that's how they feel in the moment. They go to the ER, and then they feel very embarrassed or they feel very upset when the doctor tells them, "No, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. You are not having a heart attack. You're just actually having anxiety and it's panic." And then they feel like there's something wrong with me mentally. You know, I'm not going. Am I going crazy? What's mm-hmm. going on? But what I want listeners to understand is that's how strong the panic disorder is. Mm-hmm. You're going to have the symptoms go so intense that you might feel like you're going to die. Mm-hmm. You might feel like there's something wrong with you. Um, and you end up going to the ER. So one telltale sign that somebody truly had a panic disorder, because a lot of people will come and tell me, doc, I swear to you, I have panic disorder. I was just freaking out because this happened and forget. And these the word freaking out when somebody's had a panic disorder, they say, or a panic attack. They say, I am so deathly afraid of having one again. I never want to experience that again Mm -hmm. because it is the worst feeling in the world. It is super scary. So that's something to consider. For those times, it is good to take a medication at that time. It kind of quells the emotions, It, it slows the body down because unfortunately, it's a vicious cycle where you start having anxiety, the heart rate goes up. As the heart rate goes up, it tells the brain, you better worry, and it activates the brain as the brain activates, it tells the heart to activate. So it's this back and forth cycle of anxiety in the body, anxiety in the body. And there's no way to turn that off. It's just a matter of time. Now it might last for somebody say, I don't know, five minutes, but to them, it felt like an hour, Mm -hmm. you know, in that moment, it feels like an hour. So these are important things to definitely consider and get help with. Um, there is something also called, I don't know if you've heard of social anxiety disorder, Mm -hmm. social anxiety. Any thoughts on that?
1: Um, a lot, (laughs) (laughs) um, very close to me. I, I have somebody very, very close, near and dear to me who actually has it. Okay. And, um, it's, um, it's a struggle for many reasons, especially as this person, um, is becoming an adult and they are going to have to deal with people, you know, um, whether it's with, um, school or, um, having a job where they have to actually deal with the public, let alone their employer and have to, um, be in front of somebody answering questions, you know, um, so it's, um, it's a struggle, even, even doing simple tasks like, um, going up to a bank teller to, withdraw funds from your account or um, ordering food at a restaurant.
0: It's really hard because like you were saying, with social anxiety, one of the things is if you suffer from it, it's really hard because it's hard to function. It's hard to go do what seems like everybody else can do. Mm -hmm. If a loved one suffers from it, it's hard because it's hard to function Mm -hmm. because you feel limited in being able to just kind of freely go do things and not worry about things that seem basic, things that seem like they shouldn't worry the person, but the, the reality is that they do. That anxiety is very real, mm-hmm. and it's a struggle both ways because it can get frustrating. It can lead to a lot of arguments. Mm-hmm. It can actually lead to it in relationships breaks up, breakup, and things like that. If somebody's dating somebody, because they say, "I don't want to live my life like this. I want to be able to get out there and function." Yeah. And The other person saying, "Well, I need you to stay with me, or I need you to to be here with me because I can't move." Right. Um, so, if somebody is experiencing that, I recommend that they get help or that they seek out help because that is truly right there one of those that most people don't see mm-hmm. because it's it's hard to see that one. You know, for somebody to say, usually it's the person you, Hey, can you go do this for me? Can you Mm -hmm. go do that for me? Can you say this for me? And all of a sudden it becomes this crutch and people start using the term codependency, things like that. But the reality is that person needs to learn how to function on their own as well, because it can be very, it can be very frustrating. Mm -hmm. So if you're experiencing any of these things, any types of anxieties, make sure that you consider going to get help because you can feel better. That's the main thing. Um, that i would say from a medical perspective in terms of trying to think catholic and be catholic you know go out there get help it's not against our religion to take medication or to get help for yourself when we come back from the break you're not alone in the catholic faith because we're going to talk about saints who experience anxiety and how we can pray to them to help us out All right, welcome back to the Dr. Louis Sandoval show here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, where we are joined by our very own Trish, who is helping us go through this and navigate the waters of anxiety. and what really that and what that means for us. You know, as Catholics, we always feel anxious, right? We always say that. There's that Catholic stress, that Catholic guilt, that Catholic anxiety. and That's a whole different thing. Today, we're talking about clinical anxiety, what this means in our lives, and is this something that we can get treatment for? In a little bit, we're going to talk about a few saints who experience anxiety. So you realize this is not foreign to any human being. It's a normal emotion. But Trish, what do you think? What do you think about treatment-wise? I mean, I know that we can talk about breathing exercises and thinking about good things in meditation and prayer, and that's all hundred percent true. I recommend it to all my patients. I always tell my patients, I don't have better medication than Christ. I really don't. But also on the practical level, God gave us medicine, God gave us therapies. And what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think, um, it's hard to know when to go to the, the medicine versus, um, more of a holistic approach. It's really hard to know. Um, I've seen the effects of, um, Medication gone wrong mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, patients, um, personal friends of mine included, and in all of that. and so um, you know, I have a phobia <laughs> for certain kinds of medication um, based on my own observations and personal um, yeah um, just experience uh, with it. so um, how do how does one know? when to medicate and when not to it's a
0: great question you know it's a great question and one of the things that i would say is this there's different types of therapies right and medication is one therapy modality which obviously works for some people if you need it and so what i usually say is from the clinical perspective uh, if you're going to come into a, a medical doctor in and or a therapist or something on those lines i always say start with therapy you know we have uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which helps us, you know, think: how do we feel? How do we act? And what challenges our anxieties really? So somebody's telling me, oh, I think that I'm always going to mess up. And then you ask them, really always? Do you think you like? Did you mess up coming here? Did you mess up putting your shoes? You want to challenge that. Even it might sound simple. It's not trying to be patronizing, but really to challenge the idea of always. I'm always anxious. I'm always doing something. Those negative self, self uh, negative self thoughts that can bring us anxiety or put us down. We want to challenge those thoughts because then we've got to look at, well, I know how you feel, but what's the reality? You know, the reality, what are the facts? Because feelings are very different. We can't always trust our feelings and anxiety is one of those feelings. So the first thing I would say is try the therapies, um, therapy, talking to somebody, talking to a friend can be therapy, talking to a parent keeping open communication. These are all very therapeutic things. Another thing to consider is uh, a little bit more drastic, but exposure therapy. So exposure therapy is if you're afraid of particular things like being out in society and thinking that something's going to go wrong. Well, guess what? Maybe you need a buddy or somebody go out in society and see what happens. Challenge the brain so that it can see, Hey, I was in that situation. Maybe I went to a baseball game and it was okay. Nothing happened. You know, maybe I didn't feel good, but nothing happened. And you start doing things little by little. It doesn't have to be that extreme, but you can start doing things little by little. Um, and that's just therapy. That's We haven't even gotten to medication at that point. But Trisha, if I were to tell you, hey, you know, let's say you came to the clinic and I said, oh my goodness, I think you're suffering from anxiety. I think I want to prescribe you some medication. What's the first thing that goes through your mind when you hear that?
1: If um, if somebody told me that, and I think this might have to do with a control issue yeah. that I would have. Sure. Like, um, oh, you need to you need to have a, a medication to just kind of bring it down a notch. Mm-hmm. I mean, me personally, I I have to be dying before I even take <laughs> some headache medicine. Sure. So I would be like, no, can you give me another another. Option. Option. Yes.
0: And this is what I can tell you is uh, from a, from a physician's point of view, uh, and different physicians are going to have different philosophies. Some of us are very quick to say, here, here's some pills, because that's what we do, right? That's what we're used to. We're used to prescribing. From my perspective is if I, if you're at the point where I'm telling you, I think you need to consider medication, it's more than likely because I feel that you're not functioning at that point, Mm -hmm. or I'm seeing that you can function better, or you're being limited by your anxiety. Okay. Now, just the thought of medication can be scary. And so one of the things that I would say is it's important that if your physician or somebody tells you, I think you need medication, don't jump to any conclusions right away. You know, I tell this to our listeners, ask them, well, what do you mean by medications? What kind of medications? What is it that you think I should take? Because there are some very benign medications that you can take, something like a medication called hydrox. Uh, Hydroxazine, um, big names, another name that goes by brand names like Vistaril or Atarax. And that one, it's kind of like a little bit of a stronger Benadryl, you know, that you can take. It's not habit forming and it kind of relaxes you during the day. You gotta be careful because a lot of these medications might make you sleepy. Right. And one of the things that you want to ask about is, is it habit forming or not? Because like the one I just described, you can take it as needed and it's not, you're not going to get addicted to it or anything like that. There are other medications, however, and I'm sure you've heard big names like Xanax or Valium or Ativan or things along those lines. And those are called benzodiazepines. So those, do they work? Absolutely. As soon as you take it, you're probably not going to feel anxious uh, within, you know, within half an hour for sure that anxiety is going to calm down. But now you gotta be careful. Now those are habiformia and they're addictive. And do you know why they're addictive, Trish?
1: Um, I think it's it's training your brain or perhaps changing the chemistry.
0: Actually, great point. So, you know, that's one of the biggest fears. It's like you're gonna give me something that's gonna tweak my brain. You're gonna make me different. And the reality is no. Actually those benzodiazepines, what they do is they actually work on the same receptors that alcohol would work on. Mm. And so one of the things is all those do is they sleep the brain for the moment. Mm-hmm. Now, are those always bad? No, I think those are perfect for if you are going to take a flight, you take one of those before your flight, it just relaxes you during the flight and then it wears off. And that's it. The problem comes in when people say, I want to take it. It relaxes me. It wears off. And now I need another one. Yeah. And I did, now I need another tendency. So you, because the body develops a time, just like alcohol, you know, if if you needed one drink to kind of get an effect after a while, if you continue to do that, you're going to need three, four or five. And pretty soon you become alcoholic, right? Or you become dependent on the alcohol. And so those work in the same way. They're very good to take in a very controlled setting once in a while, just to take care of the moment. Panic attacks, you're gonna go to the ER if you're having a panic attack, that's what they're gonna give you. They're gonna say, hey, let's just calm this down right now, go home and talk to your doctor. But if we're gonna talk about long-term treatment of anxiety and taking that into account, you wanna take something that we call the SSRIs or the SNRIs, and those work on just serotonin or serotonin and norepinephrine. And these are the common names you've heard of. Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, Cymbalta, any of these names that you've heard of, these are actually good medications. You know, you, can take, you want to take them every day and it calms the brain down. Um, but you do take them every day. Does that mean you have to be on them forever? No, the brain is very slow to learn a new habit, if you will. It's kind of like breaking a bad habit of anxiety and learning a new habit of being calm. So you might want to take those for maybe a year, or year and a half, depending on how long it takes the brain to adjust. You start to notice like, hey, I didn't get anxious where I normally would, and maybe it's working. And now we can wean off of those and see where you're at. What do you think of that?
1: Um, Sure. It, it, when do you know to start weaning off?
0: Great point. So then it all depends on your level of anxiety and what that means for each person individually because a lot of patients, especially from different cultures where medicine is very taboo, um, they get on these medications, they do really well. And sometimes the family members will be like, you gotta stop that, these are bad. And they'll start weaning off themselves a little bit too early and then all of a sudden all the anxiety comes back, it all comes back right away. And then they say, doc, I'm addicted because I can only be calm without this medication. I say, no, you're not addicted, you just have chronic anxiety and the medication was helping control it. So it's a fine line, you gotta look at that difference. When do you start weaning off though? Usually if you get to the point where you notice that, wow, I feel my I feel like my anxiety is well controlled. I feel like myself. I'm not reacting to these moments anymore. Let's drop it a dose. Mm-hmm. Let's drop it a notch and see where I'm at. Let's drop it because what we've got to consider too is, and a lot of us don't appreciate, we can inherit these things, and sometimes anxieties, depressions, they can be chronic. It can be some. It can be like a, like I tell patients, it's like you put in your car in a gear and it doesn't know how to get out of a gear. And sometimes the brain just runs in that gear, uh, it depends on the person. Some people will never experience this in their lives. Some people uh, sporadically, but for other people, it can be chronic and they can be in that gear. So really it's about having that conversation with your doc, keeping an open mind, but always being comfortable with what you're taking and making sure that it's not happy forming or, you know, that it's not going to affect you in any way, you know, but cause at the end of the day, you don't, I could give you the best medication in the world that I think is going to work. But if you don't like it, you don't believe it's going to work, it's not going to do anything for you, believe it or not. Just like in the Gospels, you know how Jesus couldn't perform miracles when people didn't have faith? We, st- we talk about this time and time again in medicine. If the patient does not believe in the medication, no matter what you give them, they're worried about side effects, they don't like it, it's not going to work. It's just I not see. going to work. Isn't that interesting?
1: It's very interesting. So, so let me ask you this, doctor. Sure. So if um, somebody were to be prescribed who has chronic anxiety, obviously that has to be diagnosed first. Mm-hmm. And then um, they go on a medication, is there going to be also cognitive therapy while they are going on this medication that is necessary so that they can learn or retrain their brain how to deal right. with the stress?
0: Absolutely. Great question. We always recommend both. So we always recommend both because you really are going to do both. If you do both, I'll tell you what, usually that's when I see people come off the medication most successfully. Mm-hmm. because. Therapy also trains the brain. Therapy changes the brain. I can give you an example. Like if I were to tell you, "Hey, Trish, before I got here, I found out you you won the lottery," <laughs> and you just smiled. What happened? <laughs> you know, I didn't do anything. I I just gave you a piece of information. Your brain absorbed it and said, "Whoa, that's awesome!" And we smile and we get happy just at the thought. Right. So mm-hmm. you notice that a thought can change the mood. Right. It can change the brain. It changes the chemistry of the brain. So in the same way, therapy. Now, granted, it's not the lottery, but therapy mm-hmm. in many ways is keeping that positive perspective, somebody there to remind you to keep that positive perspective. And the more we think positively, um, the more our brains are actually going to react in, in a, uh, less anxious way. I think there was a book one time written as like the power of positive thinking or mm-hmm. something on those lines. And so, and it's true. It sounds, it might sound cheesy or too simplistic, but the reality is it's true. If we can keep a positive outlook on life, the body follows, the physiology follows, and then the anxiety is less. So that's a, that's an important point to make. Definitely therapy with the medication. And one of the important therapies is Catholic therapy. Because I always like to look back and as you know as a mental health professional, I like to look back and say, well, did any of this, you know, what do the saints experience? Because we always think of these saints the saints as at least personally, I speak for myself, but we think of them as perfect people who did nothing wrong and they, you know, they made it to heaven because they were perfect and they were so good. And God gave them these great blessings. And we always think, I can't be a saint not perfect. That's the first answer. I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Neither were they. But I think they were perfect in their desire to be with God and their desire to love God. And that's where I think we can start working a little bit more. But it helps us to know that if we are suffering from mental illness, and whether it be, I hate using the term mental illness, if we're suffering from anxieties, depression, anything like along these lines, it's important to remember that there are saints out there who experience this. So one of the saints, if you ever heard of Saint Dymphna, can I pronounce her name? Challenging to pronounce. But she's actually the patron saint of mental illness. Mm-hmm. So Saint Dymphna, She experienced anxiety, depression, and, you know, she was born to a Christian mother. She lived a good Catholic life. But she suffered from these things, you know? So that's one of the saints. Oh, no, our time's almost up. Well, let me go through the other list of saints, too, because these are some big names. Padre Pio. Yes. Experienced anxiety. How could he not? He was being challenged by the devil all the time, right? Saint Rita, who is one of my favorite saints. Saint Rita experienced anxiety. She had a very difficult marriage, became a saint late in her life. If you look at saint John Jean-Baptiste LaSalle, he was a famous saint who experienced uh, anxieties and depressions. And guess what, one of my favorite saints, the little flower, the simple way who everybody thinks she was so perfect, her life was so easy, all she did was do simple things. No, and guess what, she experienced anxieties too. I mean, she suffered from, from a great deal of anxiety and scrupulosity. So if your anxiety is leading you to feel like you're always doing something wrong spiritually or you're always sinning, think of the little flower. She used to experience that too. And she made her way to heaven. Any last words, Trish?
1: Um, I think we need to revisit this topic. It's a good topic, right? There's a lot more to talk about. Absolutely. Definitely.
0: Well, thank you for joining us today as you, always. Doctor. And in the future, we'll be really back here in the clinic at the Dr. Sandoval Show.